Corey Gleed, a clinical psychologist, and I specialize in evidence-based treatment for anxiety, depression, and stress. And I'm Anna White. I'm a former Wall Street executive. I experienced severe burnout at one point in my career, and I discovered that it had a lot to do with my type C personality. Anna and I are here to educate people about type C traits, which are being pathologically nice, putting the needs of others above yours, avoiding conflict, always saying yes, and worrying excessively about disappointing other people. On each episode, we'll share personal stories and also strategies for how to live in healthier ways and how to prevent burnout. So we are so excited today to have Dr. Shelby Harris on the podcast. She's a clinical psychologist who is board certified in behavioral sleep medicine. She helps babies through older adults improve their sleep using evidence-based strategies. She also specializes in cognitive behavior therapy for anxiety and depression in adults and adolescents. In 2019, she published her book, The Women's Guide to Overcoming Insomnia. She's also a frequent guest and contributor to many news publications and TV shows, such as The Today Show, The New York Times, WNYC, and Good Morning America, to name a few. Shelby and I first met at Montefiore Medical Center in the Bronx. I think it was about 2005, Mm -hmm. where we were on internship together um, and had a wonderful year, and we have been close colleagues ever since. So we're so glad that she came to talk to us today. So Shelby, we would love to hear a little bit about your background and how you got into psychology and sleep medicine and what drove you there. Ah, well, first of all, ladies, thank you for having me. I was there when Corey met her future husband. So I remember those days so well. So, In the cafeteria. Yes, I remember it so well. Yeah, so thank you for having me. Let's see. So I, um, I was actually, my, my whole interest in sleep started really young. I was a really terrible sleepwalker. So I uh, tried to leave my parents' house a few times. I would set the alarm off. I always had to have a bottom bunk at camp. So there were a lot of things. I eventually grew out of it, but it was definitely a thing that defined my sleepover camp years. And then when I went to grad or I went to college, actually, they had a really popular course called Sleep 101 that was taught by an adolescent sleep researcher, Mary Karskadden. I actually didn't take the course. I sat in on it once in a while, but there were there was another conflict I had, but I was just interested in it. And then when I graduated, I took a year off because I actually was trained as a upright bassist, classical bassist. So I was debating whether to go into music or to psychology. I just really liked psychology. I had no real reason for it, but I worked in research and they had me going into rehabs for alcoholism and um, they were actually doing sleep treatments at that time they were using a medication called trazodone to help people sleep better and the theory was if you help someone in early uh, early recovery the idea was if you help them sleep better it helps to reduce the relapse rates because a lot of people go back to alcohol use and drug use whatever it is because they're not sleeping so Lo and behold, it made a huge difference. And I just started thinking like, wow, why does no one, and this was back in like 2000, why is no one talking about sleep and the power that it can have? And if we're talking about it in this population, it's amazing what it could do for many other people. So when I went to graduate school, there was a person there who did a lot of nightmares work and and work on insomnia. And I kind of started working with him and then it just snowballed from there. So let's talk a little bit about your book, The Women's Guide to mm-hmm. Overcoming Insomnia, wonderful resource. We'd love if you could just share some of your favorite strategies from the book. 
So I decided to write the book 2014, I believe, 2015. I had been approached um, by a publisher that was saying that said that they wanted to possibly write a book with me. And I was thinking, well, what would I want to write about? I wasn't sure specifically, but I knew I wanted to write about insomnia. And the more I thought about it, it's like so many of my patients are women, especially women either just having had babies or especially women who were in perimenopause and menopause. And there wasn't that much of a conversation at that time about teaching people about the differences between men and women and sleep and how we can tailor treatments. And so I really wanted to focus on it um, for women and that it was, it's really about cognitive behavior therapy for women. So some of the great strategies in it are things like worry time and journaling before bed, but also that's all the cognitive stuff. I talk a lot about meditation. A lot of people that I work with are like, oh, I don't want to meditate, but meditating during the day, not at night during the day can really help us sleep at night to kind of quiet the busy brain. And then there's strategies such as learning how to limit time in bed. A lot of it goes against common sense. So if you're in bed eight hours, but you're only sleeping six hours, I teach people how to actually calculate the right amount of time they should be in bed for, and then slowly increasing it over time. So it really focuses on improving the quality of the sleep first over the quantity, because a lot of people get very hung up on the eight hours, and that's not really how you should be approaching it. And I also address in it things like how to know if you have sleep apnea, how to know if you might have a restless leg issue, all those sorts of things that never get asked in primary care when you have your appointments, or even with gynecology, because they are so many other things to talk about, that these are great ways for you to see when you might want to see a sleep doctor. Oh, these are great strategies. Um, so and I think would be very applicable to our population. So as you know, our podcast and our website and our initiatives all about helping people with type C traits yeah. who are excessively conscientious, overly responsible, avoid conflict, spend a ton of time doing a lot of things for other people, don't want to disappoint other people and really struggle with setting boundaries, internalize a lot and constantly put on this facade of like, everything's fine. Mm -hmm. um, so First, we'd love to just say, like, do you see many patients like this in your practice? And what do you feel like kind of connects the, these traits in some ways to interacting with poor sleep? Yeah, I mean, this is such a common, common thing that I see all the time. I see it a lot, interestingly, I would say, with women who have just had babies, right? So there's a bit of the idea of, well, I have to be the one who takes care of everything because my significant other is the one going to work and I'm on leave for a few weeks, months, however long they have, that I have to be the one to do everything. And they don't speak up enough to come up with a plan to help make time for sleep, how to make, ask for your needs to help be met. Because we do know that protecting a four to six hour window of sleep at night is very protective against anxiety and depression postpartum. So really learning to do, set those boundaries, get the help you need, have that discussion before the baby even comes is super important. And then I see it with women who are working and have families at home and just think that they can do everything and try to please everyone to be the per perfect parent and the perfect worker, it ends up backfiring. And the, so it either turns into ruminating at night, not being able to turn your brain off because you're doing anything and everything up until it's time to actually finally go to sleep. Or the other thing that we see that's not really insomnia so much, but it's this idea. It's I called it in my book, momsomnia, which some of my friends had always called it. But the term that people use now is revenge bedtime procrastination. So right. when no one else is asking anything of you for a little while, 
for a long while at night when you finished all the other tasks for everyone else, it's finally you want the time for yourself to do things. So it's binge watching shows on your phone, doom scrolling, whatever it is, that that ends up getting in the way of getting a good night's sleep as well. So I have a very, very stubborn case of insomnia. It started when uh, I was pregnant with my son, who's now 16. So I've been grappling with insomnia for that long. And it's a, it's a night waking pattern where I wake up at three o'clock in the morning. I'm awake for, you know, two or two hours usually. And I've tried everything across the spectrum. I've tried medicines and holistic treatments. And, you know, I've, I've figured out ways to mitigate it to some degree, but I'm super curious if you've ever just worked with someone like me who has a very stubborn case. And if you have, what helped? <laughs> I mean, that's the majority of what I see, honestly. So, yeah. and I'm sorry, it's not fun. Uh, um, you know, it also, it, it depends. There's no one size fits all approach. So I think it could be for some people, you know, what may have started it is not necessarily what's maintaining it now. So it could be sometimes hormonal changes. So sometimes actually women that I've worked with have gone on um, menopausal hormone treatment or any of the medications that might be useful, hormones, whatever it might be. For other people, it's really limiting time in bed, like I was saying earlier. So if you're only sleeping five hours a night, I have them in bed at the beginning for five, five and a half hours. And what that tends to do is lessen the amount of time that you're awake for in the middle of the night. Sometimes it's more cognitive stuff, working on the worries. It depends on the person and what's going on in their brain at night. But I would say that the awakenings in the middle of the night is probably one of the most common things that I see, especially in women. Overall, you've heard Anna's story. And in general, um, are there any other strategies for type C patients that you haven't just mentioned uh, that you want to just share? Well, I think strategies in general, it's really about what are the things that you're saying yes to all the time that you really, that don't have to be that priority that has to get done that moment. So it's a lot of boundary setting and learning prioritizing. And are you saying yes? One of the things someone once said to me is, when you prioritize before bed, and this really made a lot of a big impact on me, it's like, what needs to be done for tomorrow? What would you like to have done tomorrow? And what do others want you to have done tomorrow? So mm-hmm. it's the others part that I think with type C is the huge thing. Are you feeling the pressure to get this done because someone else is telling you? So learning to challenge the thoughts of, if I don't do this, X, Y, Z is going to happen. Learning to challenge that, that you don't have to be such a people pleaser all the time because- you're sacrificing your own health in the long run. So really learning to prioritize before you go to bed at night. I love that. So I have to ask you about a, you know, a current trend that I'm sure that you're very, you know, aware of and people ask you this all the time. But there was this interesting article in the New York Times recently, a science section which I'm obsessed with. Alan, my husband kind of gets angry at me because that's where I get a lot of my medical knowledge. But so the, it was about marijuana. And frankly, it was kind of one of those kind of typical articles where that you don't, you still, you have a lot of questions at the end, right? So, um, you know, in general, they were saying that CBD may be better than marijuana because it seems to have fewer likelihood to create dependence and tolerance. A marijuana, you know, may be more likely to create these things because of the THC. It also suggested that maybe edibles would be better than vaping because it has a slower action uh, release. Um, and definitely it is not a good thing to be using regularly, but maybe once in a while. So we'd just love, you know, your thoughts about this and do you recommend it? Is this something, you know, that we should be thinking about? 
it's something that I see daily. Like I just saw a patient that's using THC routinely and CBD. Like I see it every single day. The thing that we have to keep in mind with it is that it's so new in terms of legality in most states that we don't have a lot of research on it, right? So that's the first thing. And I do see a number of patients that are using THC. So the CBD, first of all, has been around a little bit longer. Some people swear by it and say, if it works for you, fine. But remember, I see the people that tend to not respond to many things. So I rarely see people that CBD is working amazingly well for, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't work for some people, but it's not a standard in our treatment literature yet. They are actually researching it in the field of sleep. They're trying to research a pharmaceutical grade of THC. I don't know if it's THC plus CBD. I don't fully know, but they're trying to come up with a standardized way to really research it more. Because the other thing you have to think about, yes, there's the dependency issues. I do have some patients that have to use more and more over time slowly. Some people find that it makes them really groggy and they don't get the best sleep from it. Other people love it. There's a real variation. But the one other thing you have to think about is that there's no standardization either from one dispensary to another. So when one person's telling me that five milligrams of THC is working great for them from one place, I don't know that it's necessarily going to be the exact same from another place. And then you also have to think about when it comes to the gummies, those take time to work. So there's no, it's not like an Ambien that you would take and okay, 20 minutes later, you get in bed. For some people, it could be three hours before. So are people going to be taking a gummy when they're out to dinner and then not knowing, like hoping that it hits them three hours later when it's time to go to bed. So it's not always the most ideal thing, but that being said, we just don't have enough research on it. I will say anecdotally, I've tried, I've tried both and I've tried all kinds of different varieties and I've never had much success with it at all, but I know, but I know some people do. We love to ask our guests all about what they do personally for self-care. So we'd love to hear sort of any routines that you have or strategies that you have to relax, to have fun, to keep yourself healthy. So one of the things that I started doing just about 15 years ago now is I started running. I never really, I was a big tennis player in high school, but then I didn't exercise for years. And I started to run and now I run marathons. I've taken the spring and the winter off a little bit from hardcore running, but exercise is really important for me. Um, I noticed that I just like, I'm more irritable when I'm not exercising. So I try at least five, six days a week to either spin, run, do some weights, do some sort of movement. It also helps me to sleep better. So I really do try to prioritize that. Um, the other thing that I really make a big deal out of is I try to get enough sleep every night whenever I can. I have two kids, like I get it, life gets in the way, but more nights than not, I really try to make sure that I'm getting, for me, it's, I'm one of those eight hour people. I just need eight hours, but I try to make sure that I really have a good wind down routine. Um, nothing too lengthy, but that I'm making time for sleep because that really does help me too. So I have two questions here um, about, I would love to hear a little bit more about your sleep routine, like what you specifically do, but I actually have two quick questions. One, since we're talking about having fun and ways to relax, love to hear your thoughts about alcohol and just sort of from a moderation perspective, your thoughts a little bit about how alcohol works with sleep, but also kind of what's sort of a normal expectation about alcohol and my my second not question but i just want everyone to know shelby is an amazing runner and when she says she does marathons she does like multiple marathons 
Um, so it's extremely impressive. Um, and I know there's been some good, but busy personal things going on in your life yeah. that have probably made that a little bit difficult, but that's a very impressive other side thing. But talking about the the running though, and having fun for me, I started running because I moved up from New York city. I moved up to Westchester and I didn't have kids just yet. And I didn't really know anyone in Westchester. So I joined a run club. And for me, almost every Saturday I'm out there. So that's my socialization. Like people are like, well, you exercise for fun. I spend two, three hours some weekends when I'm in hardcore training, running and talking with people. And just, it really is just a lovely outlet for me. For alcohol, I mean, the rule of thumb is typically about three hours before bed, you should limit alcohol because a lot of people do use it to help them fall asleep. But what it does is it makes the quality of the sleep that you have really crummy. So people will start. And also you start to need more and more of it because you become tolerant to it. So it's really not a great sleep aid. I'd rather people be on certain prescription meds over alcohol, believe it or not. I also am a realist. I don't like to be so hardcore about no alcohol, wind down this, like all that stuff, because I, I also think that sleep is meant to bolster your daytime life. And if you're not living and enjoying life, then what's the point? So if you want to go out once in a while, have fun with friends, stay out a little bit later, fine. Just make that exception, the exception, not the norm. So once, twice a week, maybe go out with friends, but not every night. That's how I try to look at it. Try to be realistic about it. In terms of my own wind down routine, it's funny. People ask me that all the time. Like, I feel like it's so personalized. I really, I mean, I put my kids to, my, not my son, my son is now up later than me, but I put my daughter who's seven, I put her to bed. We read, sometimes my husband puts her to bed and then I go to bed pretty early. So I'll go downstairs, do whatever I need to do around the house. Sometimes I'll watch a show and then I go upstairs. I wash my, I wash my face. I like to do a really good skincare routine. I'll get in my pajamas and then I do a stretching routine that I started at the beginning of the pandemic because I'm so tight from running. So I would do like on the Peloton app, I did like a 10, 20 minute stretching routine initially. And everyone's like, oh, isn't that blue light? It's okay. It's I'm not staring at it. Um, so I'll do that. And then I get in bed. I read for maybe 10 minutes and then I turn the lights out and I go to bed. It's just, and I try to do it in a routine enough time so that my body learns to fall asleep around the same time every day. And I'm guessing you get up in the same time every day. I do. Pretty, I'm pretty good about it. It's gotten later with the pandemic because I don't have to go into an office in the same way that I used to, but I am pretty regimented about it. Yeah. I have one other question about melatonin. It, mm -hmm. it, it feels unregulated. It's a huge market. I feel like my daughter's kind of got addicted to it. Do you have thoughts on, on whether it's safe or not, or whether it's effective? Yeah. So I have a, it, it's interesting. I, I do a lot of stuff in Instagram and I'm off, often talking about melatonin not being great. So melatonin, in the terms of the research, it's very mixed, believe it or not, but it's the one supplement that we have the most research on. So we do find that in certain populations, kids with ADHD and autism, melatonin is actually very much indicated for many of them. You'd want to talk to your pediatrician, obviously get the right dosage. People often think more is better. So I always say, like, if you're needing more than five or six milligrams of melatonin at night to fall asleep, then it's not for you. I see people all the time on 20 milligrams of melatonin because we see in the drugstores 10 milligram bottles and really three to five milligrams is a hefty, good enough dose. And if that's not working to help you fall asleep, it's not for you. 
That being said, one of the most popular posts that I had over the past year or two was when do sleep doctors actually use melatonin? Because we do use it. So, but we use it very differently than most people do. I use tiny, tiny, tiny doses, like a half a milligram. And I give it to people many hours before bed to help shift. We use it for their body clock timing. So it's not really for insomnia. We use it for people who are extreme night owls, but could sleep eight hours. We use it for people with shift work issues. We use it for jet lag. It can be indicated there, but we don't use it as the like, take a big dose, an hour later, you go to sleep kind of thing. And it, it's so it, there are the places where it is very much applicable, but not for everyone. And the one other thing, like you said, it's not regulated. So in the US, it's not regulated. I always try to look for something that's USP verified. That's an outside sore, um, group that kind of puts their stamp of approval on it. In many countries, melatonin is prescription only. So, and then someone was telling me, I think it was the UK that you have, to, if you're going to give melatonin to a child or an adolescent, you have to be a board certified psychiatrist, adolescent psychiatrist. Like you can't even just be anyone, any physician to prescribe it. It's very interesting how we treat it so differently here. I have actually one last yeah. sleep related question. What are your feelings on alarm clocks? Because I was just reading something recently and thinking, or just alarms yeah. and just thinking that it's an, it's artificially breaks up your sleep. Yeah. And um, all of a sudden I was thinking, wow, what would it be like if I sort of spent a couple of days without an alarm clock, presumably over the weekend, so I didn't have to worry? And when would I naturally wake up? Anyway, so just kind of wondering your thought about that. So I come at it from a few different ways. So remember, I work a lot with people who have insomnia. So sleeping in, even a half hour, 45 minutes later, when we're trying to do some restriction with them and their sleep-wake timing, that's the kiss of death for insomnia. So I actually am very hardcore about having an alarm clock as that guardrail, that buffer, so that you don't sleep in because it can make a big difference. But the ideal is to be able to fall asleep and stay asleep, have a few awakenings if you want in the middle of the night, but not for long, but to sleep at the same time at bedtime and wake time and to wake up within about a half hour, 40 minutes of your natural time. Like it's never going to be exactly 6am, but within that range, it means your body clock's actually pretty well set. But the reality is most people aren't willing to chance it and have that one day when they sleep later because they have to get somewhere. So I think an alarm clock's a good thing to have, but if you routinely are sleeping too late with it, then you might want to, you know, consider whether it's good or helping or hurting. And there's also people are always like, oh, alarm clocks are too jarring. There's a million different ones out there. Like I love the hatch alarm. Like you can get just a light coming on. You can have my daughter wakes up to a pan flute that's playing. I mean, come on, how coddled can you be? There's all these great things to wake up to that it doesn't have to be. Ah, ah, ah. I'd rather people use an alarm clock than their phone because that gets the phone out of the room. All right. We love to end on any favorite books that you would like to recommend to us and our listeners? It doesn't have to be sleep related, but anything wellness related. Is there anything you that comes to mind that you highly uh, recommend? Yeah. I mean, I'm, it, it actually just dropped today, but I had an advanced copy for a little while of Real Self-Care by Pooja Lakshmi. It's amazing. So I highly recommend it. She does a lot of work for, she's a psychiatrist, um, does, does a lot of writing for the New York Times but it's a really wonderful book. And it's, it's, it's like, you know, cause when we talk about self-care, it's like, go, you know, get a massage, do this, do that. Mm -mm. So I think it's a very approachable book that makes us really think a lot about where we can fit moments of self-care in our lives. That's great. And it's so in line with our message, Corey, uh, real yeah. self-care is setting boundaries and taking that time that you need for yourself, whatever it looks like. 
So Shelby, Dr. Shelby Harris, this has been so amazing. So uh, two for last couple of things. Yeah. One, where can we find you if someone wanted to come see you? Um, where would they look? You know, what's your website? And also you talked about Instagram. What's your Instagram tag? So let us know. Um, so you can find me two, two of the easiest ways you to go to my website. It's dr like doctor, drshelbyharris.com. So you can find me there. You I have a messaging part where you can send me an email through that website. That's fine. And then honestly, a lot of people find me through Instagram. So it's at sleepdocshelby. I'm on TikTok too. I barely ever use it. I don't really understand it. I know Instagram a lot better. So you can find me at sleepdocshelby at that handle too. And I do a lot of um, posts about evidence-based treatment for insomnia and other things too. So and you places. see people who have both sleep disorders, but you do also see people that have, as you said, you know, anxiety or depression, other issues too. I do. I have more, and it, mostly it's telehealth, honestly, now, but because of licensure laws in New York, I'm still limited to the New York City or the New York State area. Hopefully that's changing. But I, I do see people for all different things. Right now, I'm mostly taking on sleep patients because I don't actually see them weekly. I see them every other week, but I do see all different types of clients. Yeah. Well, we are so grateful for all these pearls of wisdom, and I found it very interesting. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. We wish you all the best with all of your endeavors. Thank you. And I love the work that you guys are doing as well. It's really an important area that no one is talking enough about. So thank you. So we really hope you liked the episode today. And speaking of liking, we'd love to for you to go on iTunes and put some stars on there if you like the episode, even write a review if you'd like to. There are a lot of ways to get in touch with us if there are topics you'd love for us to cover. You can email us. It's typectoolbox at gmail.com. You can go to our blog, typectoolbox.com. There are links there to get in touch with us. And also check out our Instagram feed. We've got a lot of quick hit videos covering a lot of these topics. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening today. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only. It's not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, please dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the National Alliance on Mental Illness website at NAMI, which is N-A-M-I dot org.